In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. For Father's Day this year, Anna bought me a book to read to Lawrence called Dada. Every page on the book shows the same scene, only with a rotating cast of farm animals. I'm still trying to figure out why it's always farm animals with children's books. But the scene is this. There is a dad animal on one side and their baby calf, foal, or piglet, etc. on the other side. And in every scene, the dad animal is pictured enthusiastically saying the word dada to their baby. While the baby in every instance only confusedly or blankly responds with the only word they know how to say. Moo, or nay, or oink, or whatever. For reasons I don't understand, Laurie finds this book to be hilarious. Well, this book about the foolish attempt of many fathers to win the race to their child's first word is also, I've noticed, at about the hundredth time of reading it, it is a deeper level, at a deeper level, a book about how language functions. That is, we know that the sounds and words that come out of a child's mouth are largely determined by the sounds and words that first enter through their ears. Their outputs are determined by, in large part, their inputs. Think, for example, of the first time you hear a child boldly proclaim a curse word in public. We all know where they first heard that word. We know this is true not just by looking at children, but also by looking at people who are deaf, some people who are deaf at least, least. like the gentleman that we read about in Mark chapter 7. He was unable to hear and therefore connected to that, we're told he struggled with an impediment of speech. It's not often we know a matter of the muscular potential of one's vocal cords, it more has to do with one's lack of audible inputs. On the one hand, it's easy to read this story as yet another straightforward episode of Jesus healing someone in need, which, of course, it is. But on the other hand, I think especially given this story's placement after the episode with the Syrophoenician woman, that highly symbolic episode, and generally given what we've learned by now about Mark's style of writing, I think we can also read this story of miraculous healing at a deeper symbolic level as well, and that's what I'd like to try to do, to read it as a story about language and what language has to do with being a Christian. Something I'm afraid we falsely assume is that this process of language learning stops at some point, that once we more or less learn how to speak English, we know how to speak English, and so that never changes. But the truth is that process never stops. Our speech is always and constantly changing and evolving, and our inputs are still largely determining our outputs. For us, it's just happening at levels of greater subtlety and complexity than when we were first learning how to speak. Let me give you a simple example. Have you ever 
started spending lots of time with someone new, be it a new friend or coworker, and then several weeks later you'll notice that you've subconsciously adopted some of that person's words or common phrases. Have you ever welcomed a teenager home from summer camp? You hardly recognize half of the words coming out of their mouth anymore. These are simple examples. But the thing is, the same thing is happening for each of us at much more complex levels as well. It's not just a matter of isolated words and phrases that we might subconsciously adopt from new friends or coworkers. Think, for example, if you isolated yourself with that new friend and coworker on one of those, like, what would it be like to live on Mars kind of projects, right? And you just spend so much time with that person and you isolate yourself from everybody else. Eventually, word by word, brick by brick, in ways that you'll have a hard time even noticing. It's not just words and phrases that will change, but your bricks of your worldview will begin to change bit by bit. And this phenomenon, I think, goes a long way in explaining the paralysis of our hopelessly partisan public dialogue in this country. Because those on the right and the left don't just substantively disagree on issues anymore. They speak entirely different languages. And even though occasionally they use the same or similar words, those words tend to mean entirely different things within the ecosystems of their respective tribes, such that we struggle to even speak intelligently in public to one another anymore. We're speaking different languages, living in different realities. That's why it feels like every politician you listen to is just talking past one another. I'm sure you recognize this phenomenon. We participate by watching and listening to different news sources. Our social media feeds are algorithmically predetermined to show us content that will only reinforce what we already believe. And we're left without a real ability to empathize with anyone who plays for the other team. We tend to think that these divisions are about issues. But I think another way to look at it is it's actually about language. Mother Mary, for example, gave a great sermon last week about how differently the word liberty can be used by different people. But you could almost take your pick of the words that you hear come out of most politicians' mouths, like freedom or rights or responsibility or socialism. <laughs> Even the word politics itself can mean very different things depending on whose mouth it's coming out of. I know the place it sounds like I'm going with all of this is for me to now say something like, and this is why we should all be careful about the inputs that we're allowing into our ears, that we should diversify our inputs that we should go to extra effort to get to know people who are different from us, that we should go the extra mile, that everybody should delete all of their social media accounts, especially Twitter, immediately. And that's all probably true, and probably we should do all of those things. But those things don't have so much to do with God or church or what we're doing right now. So I'd like to 
take a different angle than saying those things that we should all probably do anyways. What this conversation has to do with us and with church and with being a Christian is this. I actually think that being a disciple of Jesus is, in a way, very much like learning a new language. Being a Christian, when you think about it, at the beginning especially, is first about learning lots of new vocabulary words, like forgiveness, like sin, like salvation, like Holy Spirit, like Trinity, disciple, grace, baptism, Eucharist, the place that you put yourself where these words can be input into your ears is church. But eventually you graduate beyond isolated words and phrases. When enough of those words and phrases come together, when you begin to be able to string them together into sentences, you'll find that you actually start to see the world around you differently. Learning to describe the world around you with Christian language actually opens up new possibilities for how you can act in the world. The mistakes that you make, for example, are no longer things that you are just punished for or alienated for. They are sins you can confess and be forgiven for and then be restored to reconciled and healed relationship with the community. Death is a word that refers to something that is no longer the end, but is itself just a gateway to everlasting life. Let me give you two other examples. Consider the word nature. A mentor of mine some years ago challenged me to remove the word nature from my vocabulary completely. He said, Christians have no need of the word nature. The Christian word for nature is creation. There is no instance where you could use the word nature where for a Christian creation would not be a better fit. Now that's a small difference, but think about the way the word nature is a little bit more neutral, a little bit more standing on its own, a little bit more separate from us, indifferent to us. Think about how the word creation not only implies some intentional design, but implies some kind of enchantment even. Think about how erasing the word nature from your vocabulary and replacing it with the word creation might subtly and slowly over time in subconscious ways better motivate you to care for the earth. To recognize it not as a random accident of the collision of molecules millions of years ago, but as a precious and intentional gift for you to enjoy and to steward. Another example. Think of the Psalms. If you page through the Psalms, what you find is an encyclopedia of every emotion that any human being can ever experience. The Psalms are full of crazy stuff. People praising God for good things that have happened. People cursing God for everything bad that's ever happened. 
People wishing that their enemies would die. People wishing that their enemies' children would die. People lamenting the death of their loved ones. People crying out for revenge. You read the Psalms enough and you realize eventually that all of this encyclopedia of vast human emotions are prayers. The Psalms are showing you an example of what you can and should do with that wide range of emotions that you experience as a human being. How many of us have feelings and emotions inside of us that we don't know where to put We don't know what to do with. The Psalms are a way of saying to us, there's nothing you can't share with God. There's no emotion you can feel that you can't invite God into. Learning to speak Christianese, for lack of a better word, does not mean that you forget how to speak English or that you forget how to make your way around in the outside world. But it is a bit like living in one reality nested inside of another. And the more that Christianese becomes your primary language, the more you find that you have to constantly translate in your head when you're interacting with the world around you. You can think of coming to church once a week as a bit like going to French class once a week. It's a good enough method of learning French. Over a long period of time, you'll probably get pretty good at it. But it is going to be much more effective and go much faster if you're committed to doing your homework along the way. Your homework, of course, is all of those things that you promised or your parents promised on your behalf when you were baptized. That the other six days of the week, you would proclaim the gospel by word and example. That you would love your neighbor as yourself. That you would strive for justice and peace among all people. That you'd respect the dignity of every human being. That's more than those things, too. It's just reading your Bible. It's spending time with God in solitude and prayer. It really is about managing the inputs in your life. If you spend one hour a week in church and you spend 15 hours a week reading the news and then you wonder why you're sad all the time, before you know it, if you're doing your homework, it's not just French class. Before you know it, you're living in Paris, baby. Who doesn't want to live in Paris? The truth is that Christianese is the most beautiful language there is. It's the most beautiful language to speak because the kingdom of God is the most beautiful place to live. It's not necessarily the easiest, and it is not a place immune to tragedy and brokenness, but it is a language that sees and describes reality clearly, as it really is as God sees it. It is the language that our souls were destined to speak. They are words that make sense of our existence. 
and alter the contours of the reality that we're able to act within. In closing, it should be said that learning a new language is not exactly a mountaintop experience. It is a matter of cultivating mundane and daily habits through which you can only see change occur slowly and over a long period of time. But as I've said in a hundred other sermons that I've given from this pulpit, that's exactly the key to following Jesus. Notice in this story the bizarre, mundane details through which Jesus cures the deaf man. He puts his fingers in his ears and spits before putting those same fingers on his tongue. As Casey mentioned in the children's sermon outside about an hour ago, he asked the kids, do you think that he still had earwax on his fingers when he put his fingers on his tongue? The question is, why doesn't Jesus heal the deaf man just by snapping his fingers? Surely he could have done that. Part of what it means for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine is that he does divine things humanly and does human things divinely. Jesus is doing this divine healing very humanly. And if we want to speak the divine language of the kingdom of God, God will help us humanly too. It really is a matter of allowing Jesus into the nooks and crannies of our daily and seasonal rhythms. It really is treating Jesus like a friend whose words and phrases you subconsciously adopt over time and who over more time begins to change your entire life brick by brick, word by word, so that slowly and gradually you begin to look like one another. If you're feeling like you don't have the language to make sense of the world around us right now, what I'm saying is it might not be a matter of finding the right news outlet. It may be about learning to speak a new language entirely. Amen.